0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holmich. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. If the body of Christ is going to be multicultural, multi-generational, including all races, cultures, classes, married people, and single people, if if that is a vision for the church, if in the church there will be former Muslims and Hindus and atheists and men and women and young and old, people of every political persuasion from all geographies, uh, some married, some not, if the church is to consist of all of these people gathering together in the worship and the honor of Jesus Christ, then there must be love. Love must be present. And there must be times where a believer lays down their own preferences for the sake of the love of others in the body of Christ. Now, in the church in Corinth, the big subject that would illustrate this principle was the subject of the possibility of eating meat that had been offered to idols. That's why Paul says in verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, Paul says, puffs up, but love builds up. You see, in Corinth, meat was a rarity. Any meat that they did consume would likely have come from the pagan temples because they would offer the Romans and Greeks sacrifices to their gods. They would give their gods the less desirable portions, take the better portions to the marketplace or to the priests who would either eat the meat or host a banquet, which was sort of an ancient version of our modern restaurant. And Corinthians, Corinthian believers were wondering, are we allowed to buy that meat? Are we allowed to eat that meat in a friend's home? Are we allowed to go to one of those banquets to eat meat? And in asking that question, there were some who had knowledge. What knowledge did they have? Well, the knowledge that they had apparently was that The idols were nothing. And we'll see that as we move through this passage. That knowledge that the idols are nothing uh, and that they weren't engaging in idolatry to eat that meat, that knowledge could, Paul says, puff up. But it is love that builds up. The basic principle here is that love is superior to knowledge. That doesn't mean that we're called to be a people who are mindless, it just simply means that in the midst of all of that knowledge, if our knowledge does not have love, as we're going to see later on in this letter, then it is of no value to the people in our lives. No, Jesus said in John 13:35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, If anyone imagines that he knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, when Paul says in verse 2, He does not yet know as he ought to know, what he means is, with the knowledge of God and His ways should come humility because we know so little of God and His ways. I mean, you, I'm sure, have some area of expertise. And as is often the case, in an area of expertise, many times people who are expert realize how little they know. My area or my field is to know Scripture. And as the years have ticked by, I've come to the conclusion that I barely know anything that there is to know. There is so much left for me to discover about God's Word. You see, when you know something, there should be this humility that is fostered. Knowledge of liberty, according to Paul, is only one half of the equation. Love is the second half. And so Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This means that the answer is to love God. You know, if if, if a person loves God, then, then he, they will not harm God's children is the idea and so Paul is preparing them for the exhortation that he'll encourage them at times to lay down their rights for one another therefore Paul continues in verse 4 as to the eating of food offered to idols we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one for although there may be So-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here Paul confirms that though people might believe in a plurality of gods, in truth There is only one God. Now, looking back at the Bible, it's often thought that the first polytheist was Nimrod, way back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And that when you get to Genesis chapter 12, polytheism was rampant throughout the world, but that it was Abraham who discovered that there is one God, as Paul mentions in this section uh, early Christians actually came to be referred to as atheists not because they did not believe in God but because they did not believe in a plurality of gods which was the popular sentiment at the time and so they they were considered atheists by people who were worshiping a multitude of deities and so Paul here clears the air only God is real. Idols, he says, are just a hunk of metal, so to speak, or wood, or stone. Idolatry is something, but an idol is nothing, is the concept. He says, verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence. And only God is real. Now, in saying this, Paul says some beautiful things about the Lord. He says in verse 6, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That is a line that Paul speaks about the Father. We're from Him and for Him. But then in verse 6, he also mentions the Son. He says, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Father, according to Paul, is the source of all creation, and Jesus' power brought creation into existence. The Creation came from the Father through the Son. Additionally, we learn that Christians live for God and have the power to do so through the Son. For God is how we live, but through the power of the Son. This is beautiful. Some Trinitarian doctrine in the midst of a passage affirming the presence of only one God however verse 7 not all possess this knowledge but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled food will not commend us to God paul writes we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do now here we must remember that the Corinthians may have thought that the argument was over at this point. You know, hey, the idols are nothing, and so we're allowed to eat all of the meat, whether it's in the marketplace or in a friend's house or in the restaurant or in the feast that the priests might throw. Uh, But Paul continues on. He has more to say. They, had they not continued reading, might have thought that they had full license and liberty to eat the meat at any time. But here, Paul demonstrates the other side of the coin. He tells them that there are those with a weak conscience, you know, those without the proper understanding concerning idols. And with that weak conscience, they would be, he says, defiled if they ate. So Paul's conclusion was that some could eat and not be in sin while others would be in sin if they ate. You know the reality is there are some things that are in a gray area biblically that given your past or given the way you were brought up, given teaching that you received over time, or just convictions that have come from your own mind or heart or from the spirit that you might because of those convictions not have a freedom to operate in that liberty now for you it would be sin so paul here is announcing he says look you know some with a weak conscience they'd be they would be defiled so we must listen to our conscience Paul said in Romans 14, verse 23, which is sort of a parallel passage, all of Romans 14, on 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he said there in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So there's a person there who he's eating He's received the teaching that the idol is nothing and that the meat is, you know, free for him to eat. But if there's a doubt in his mind about that freedom, then he is not able to eat from faith. So he should be sensitive to his own conscience and make sure that he does not eat. We must be sure that we are not forced into liberties that we are uncomfortable with. sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now here, Paul wants to make sure that we would not stumble one another in our liberties. To stumble a believer is to encourage them to do something contrary to their convictions, thereby, Paul uses the word, destroying them. To stumble a believer is to embolden them to violate their own conscience. Now, some people just don't like certain behaviors, but they will never be stumbled to do any of them. So it must be said that mere offense is not what is meant by the word or the phrase stumbling block. Nor is Paul saying that we should mislead the weak in conscience telling them that they are correct. You know, hey, the meat, yeah, it shouldn't be eaten. No, the reality is, Those strong in grace knew that the meat was fair game, but they didn't need to rub it in the face of those with a weak conscience. He should, verse 10, only be encouraged if his conscience is no longer weak, but is made strong by grace. So the questions that a believer asks are very simple. What does the Bible say? What does my conscience say? And then, ultimately, what does my brother in Christ need? Now, someone who's an infant in Christ says, I can't do that. Someone who's immature says, I can and I will, right in your face. But a mature believer says, I can do that. But there are times for the sake of others that I won't. Paul concludes this chapter by saying in verse 13, "Therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." Now, Paul here concludes that he is willing to lay down a right for the sake of the conscience of another. He he would rather abstain from eating the meat lest he bring one of his brothers in Christ, into sin, lest he stumble them. So we should respect the honest convictions of other believers about various elements in life. We should grow in grace to make sure that we're not holding on to a conviction that God's Word has not given us but that has arisen from our own hearts. We must let our Christianity impact the inner And not exclusively the outer person, you know, to make sure that our Christianity is more than outward form and ceremony. But we must also, like Paul, lay down our rights. Now in chapter 9, we have a continuation of Paul's teaching on the rights and liberties of those in Christ. Uh, The mantra of many in Corinth was, we are free in Christ. But Paul's message, as I mentioned, was that we can deny ourselves for our brother's sake. In other words, knowledge of your rights puffs up, but love edifies. So Paul would use himself as an example of a man who had laid down his rights for the sake of other believers. He says in verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others, I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul will ask ten questions in the first seven verses and eighteen in the first eighteen verses of this chapter it the whole chapter has the tone of a defense he is he is defending himself there's going to be courtroom language. That is mentioned here and his first question is am I not free you know like the Corinthians Paul had liberties he just explained that he would if it would help a believer a brother in Christ he would lay down his right to meet Paul now shows them that he had laid down a very significant right and it was his right to financial compensation for the work of the ministry that he had performed another question that he asked is have I not seen Jesus our Lord this was for Paul one of his marks of apostleship now a question that we ask is when did Paul see Jesus uh, he might have seen Jesus during his earthly ministry though Paul specifically or straightforwardly is not mentioned in the Gospels now, some do wonder if he was the rich young ruler who came to Christ, but we do know that he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was converted. He speaks of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, as an eyewitness of Jesus, one born out of due time. So, you know, he's announcing, look, I'm an apostle, I've seen Jesus. He says, verse 2, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This was Paul's most valued proof that he was an apostle. He pioneered the Corinthian church. He spent over a year and a half there ministering to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he would say, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In other words, the mere presence or reality of the corinthian church was proof enough of paul's apostolic authority the corinthians had forgotten paul a man they owed so much to and so here paul stands up for his role he says i am an apostle so verse 3 this is my defense to those who would examine me do we not have the right to eat and drink Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Here, Paul begins his defense of himself. He's going to basically give an eight-point argument that he had every right to a few different things, to eat and drink, take along a believing wife, and refrain from working for a living. What were these rights that Paul is mentioning? Well, he, he says, you know, basically as, a, as an apostle, I had a right to food from the Corinthians. I have a right to have a family, you know, a wife and children. And, and he had a right to leave secular employment so that he could devote his entire focus onto the work of the ministry. That was certainly for any minister who has ever lived that was certainly a right for Paul the apostle if it was a right of anybody else in all of ministry history it was a right of Paul's but it was a right that Paul had denied for for himself and uh, apparently Barnabas had denied himself that right as well so he asks in verse 7 who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now in these three questions, Paul gives the first three proofs that he uh, had a right, or evidences, or clues that he had a right to financial compensation for the ministry. The first proof, or the first uh, evidence, comes from The military, you know, soldiers, he says, don't pay their own way in warfare. You don't have to bring your own tank or pay your own way when going into war. Number two, from agriculture, farmers do not plant vineyards without also partaking of the fruit. You know, they're doing that work for a reason. There's a reasonable expectation that they're going to be able to partake of the crop. And then number three, Shepherds do not tend the flock without drinking the milk. So those are the first three reasons. And then verse 8, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. In other words, he says here that, number four, the law of Moses taught it that it was his right or the right of apostles to partake of the finances of the Corinthian believers. Now, he bases this on... Moses saying, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. It's interesting because Paul uses that same quotation from Deuteronomy 25 to tell Timothy to count elders who rule well as worthy of double honor. uh, Telling them that the laborer deserves his wages, to quote Jesus. Then in verse 11 he goes on, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Reason number five is that to reap material things is worth less than sowing spiritual things. Really, there's no comparison. A person might pay their physician, but here what Paul is saying is, look, the spiritual matters are more important than material matters. So if we've sown spiritual things, which are more valuable than material things, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Then in verse 12, he goes on to say, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Uh, Another reason that Paul gives is that others had already taken this right. and The Corinthians had obliged They had financially supported other ministers of the gospel. Uh, Others had received that right, uh, but Paul had not taken it. Do you not know, verse 13, that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And finally, we have this reason. The Old Testament priesthood, Paul announces here, got their food from their work. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And finally, Paul points out the reason that he had a right to be compensated for his spiritual work. He says Jesus commanded it. Of course, the question is, where did Jesus command it? Well, you might say it this way. Luke 10, verse 7, Jesus Told his disciples that the laborer deserves his wages, and then in First Timothy chapter five verse eighteen, as I quoted earlier, Paul, quoting Jesus again, says the laborer deserves his wages. So, one aim. What what this helps us this helps us in a few ways. I mean, Paul is giving us a section where he's talking about how he laid down a very significant right in his own life. But as an aside, we actually learn a lot about what a believer's modern financial generosity is for. It's, at least in part, it is for the work of gospel-centered church work. Now how this looks will vary from culture to culture and from community to community, but the go- because the gospel does not change, but the look and feel of a church will often reflect the culture it is in. So resources ought to be devoted to that gospel-centered church work. Now, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gave some instructions to the believers, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 16 on how to give. It was a personal decision, they had to predetermine, uh, was proportional to their income, and he would not pressure them at all. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 16. It seems best to just simply be a church that says, look, uh, give if you like. God loves a cheerful giver. Give if you like. Uh, but I think I'd be remiss not to say, as a pastor and Bible teacher, that there is a measure of obedience required in the Christian life to be open-handed financially and to support the work of the gospel. But Paul said in verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. So here, it's very clear Paul knew his rights. He knew them very well. But he still denied himself his right to those finances. He rejected them. He said, For if I preach the gospel, verse 16, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul felt that he had to preach. He was so strongly called, he could not boast in the fact that he had preached the gospel. I mean, to him, it was like a no-brainer. He had to preach the gospel. What then is my reward, verse 18, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? This was Paul's methodology and joy to Give the gospel free of charge, especially in Corinth. There were some churches, at least, that financially supported him, but not the Corinthians. For though I am free of all, verse 19, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those He always kept his target audience in mind. This is not chameleon of Paul, but Christian. It is very like Christ. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. He, Paul, paid the price to keep his audience in mind. I think this is very important for someone doing ministry today to remember uh, the politics of the people you're speaking to, uh, to be parental and explanatory when talking about sin uh, rather than just ridiculing, uh, to really teach, to remember the various generations and married status of various people in the church to try to think of both genders in the body of Christ. Paul believed in a new philosophy of life for Christians. We are to long for the expansion of the gospel above all things. And he was all about that in the way that he ministered to different types of people throughout the world. Then he closes this chapter by saying, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? gives an illustration, really, that communicates that he is going to take his race, his walk with the Lord, very seriously, and his concern is that he would be disqualified, and when we get to chapter 10, we're going to think more broadly, more deeply about that disqualification. He's going to use the people of Israel and as an example of believers who had allowed disqualification to come into their lives. But Paul was looking for the reward. He wanted to win the prize. He was not aimless in his Christianity, but ran with self-control and discipline, lest he be disqualified. He was not worried about his salvation, but what he wanted to hear was, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.